Well, good morning. Welcome to East LJ Baptist Church. We are so glad you're here. Can we get started this morning by saying hallelujah? Here at East LJ Baptist Church, we are captivated by Christ. In Jesus, we have seen and we cannot unsee the glory of God and the grace of God, given through the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ongoing reign of Jesus our Lord. He has captivated us. We exist to spread our enjoyment of the beauty of Christ to the world. And it is our prayer that you will see and embrace the beauty of Christ that we enjoy and that you find yourself captivated by him as well. We'll go to the Lord in a time of prayer. Kind, gracious, heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We are meeting to worship you and hear the word. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will bless and multiply what's done here today and that your work will be done, that we would be willing and open vessels for you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us and let's have a time of greeting. Greet those around you and welcome them to church today. All right, good morning again. Good to see you all, and good to see y'all enjoying some good fellowship. If you will, just make your way back to your seats. I want to give a quick thank you to Krista MacArthur's Sunday School class and probably some others who kind of joined in with her to uh, help shine up the wood on your pews and all the, all the, the natural-looking wood around here. We appreciate their efforts in uh, doing that, and we appreciate uh, their service to the Lord. Would you stand with me? Yeah, I know. Sorry about that. Well, I said return to your seats, not sit. But anyway, our scripture reading this morning is Luke chapter 20, verses 41 to 47. It'll be on the screen as, as you follow along with me. But he, speaking of Jesus here, 
said to them, he's addressing um, the, the scribes and Pharisees here, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus is addressing those who, were, who had been so actively and even wickedly opposing him and trying to, uh, to, to take him out. Only two days from the time he spoke these words, they would succeed in that. And Jesus would be crucified. But in this passage, Jesus makes it clear who he is. He's not just the physical descendant of David. He is even King David's Lord and God. He was the son of David in the flesh, but he was a son of God by the Spirit of God. He is Lord of all. And he warns the people who listen, as we should be warned this morning and will be later on in the time of the message, of those self-righteous religious leaders who not just had all, wanted to make a religious show, but even verse, verse 47 says, devoured widows' houses. Uh, aren't you glad today that you know Jesus is Lord of all, and he's come to give grace freely? It, it's not about our performance. It's not about our external show of uh, religious duties and that kind of thing. It's about what Christ has done in his perfect life, his sin atoning death and his resurrection. He is Lord of all. And we don't have to pretend, we don't have to put on, we don't have to try to perform for him. Jesus paid it all. It is finished. And Christ reigns as Lord of all. Amen. And I'm so thankful we know that. But so many around us, our friends and family, you have people that you know that need Jesus. And so we want to pray for them. We also want to pray for the unreached peoples of the world. The, the unreached people group for today is the Buruk. I don't even know how to say this, Burakumin people of Japan, 884,000 people. Only 0.2% of them are believers, about less than 2,000 of, of the 884,000 uh, folks know Jesus. Uh, this people group was touched just uh, a little bit with the gospel years and years ago, but the church is very, very small and, and not stable there. So we want to pray for this people group in Japan. Join me as we go to the Lord to pray for your neighbors and the nations. Father, thank you that you sent your Son, that Jesus was the God-man, 100% God and 100% man, and therefore the perfect and only capable Savior. Jesus, you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Father, I pray that we would just simply be humble before you and cling to Jesus. May we not play games in self-righteousness. May we not 
trick ourselves into thinking we can ever do anything that would be commendable and make us acceptable in your sight. But may we lean on Christ and as Paul says, boast only in the cross. Lord, help us to boast of Jesus by explaining what he's done to those we know that need him. And oh God, move us as your church around the world to send those who would brag about Jesus to the nations, who would introduce for the first time to so many who've never even heard Jesus' name or at least a clear explanation of what he's done, that those nations might be reached. Father, we thank you that we can also pray this morning for several who are on our hearts, uh, those who are sick and some grieving. We want to pray for Chris Jones. Lord, we lift Chris up and ask that you be with him as he is undergoing various treatments as the cancer has spread and uh, we just pray for strength for he and his family. We lift up Gina Brackett-Jones. Uh, Lord, we pray for the family of William Cochran. We pray today for Sam Dover. As he said, complications following some heart surgery, but doing some better. We lift up the Barrett family as they grieve. Lord, we pray for Lee McGargy as he uh, continues in treatments for cancer that is likewise metastasized. We continue to lift up the family of Graham Hodgkins and ask for their, their comfort, Father. And, uh, and for Lonnie Ingram as he has some ongoing health problems as well. Lord, thank you that you know each and every need of our hearts, of every person in this room. Thank you that you are present here by your Spirit. We pray now, Lord, that you would be pleased with our worship, that you would be exalted, that we would be satisfied and delight in who you are and what you've done for us. And that in that, that worship of our hearts, Lord, that you would be glorified, that Christ would be lifted high. Lord, we pray that you'd open our hearts to your word. Lord, that we would be changed and transformed by your truth today so that our lives would show the beauty of Jesus to those all around us. Lord, you're worthy, and you alone are worthy of all of this. And so we ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Remain standing as we enter into worship and song. We're glad you're here and glad you joined us this morning. Let's sing together. Uh, Jason's going to lead us, and your love never fails. Yes. 
thy grace, streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise, teach me some melodious sonnet, sung by flaming tongues above, praise the mount I'm fixed upon it, mount of Take and seal it. 
Father, thank you that we can indeed trust you. When things aren't going the way we want them to go, when we find ourselves in circumstances that are difficult and hard and challenging. Father, thank you that when we can even begin to grow frustrated with you and how life is going, that in that moment we can trust you. Because you have proven once and for all that you are for us and that you have worked and are working our eternal good. Lord, you gave your son Jesus to come live a perfect life in our place, to, while we were still sinners, go to the cross and there die in our place the death we deserve pay the price for all of our sins. Lord, you rose Jesus from the dead in victory, proving that it is finished, that salvation is accomplished. And now as we come to you through faith in Christ, you come to live in us by your Spirit. And as we sang every day, you are working all things together for our good. We can trust you because you've proven once and for all your love by interposing your precious blood, Lord Jesus, on our behalf. Help us in those hard times to trust. Help us to remember that we serve a perfectly wise and good and kind and loving Father, even when we as mere children before you don't understand what you're doing. I thank you, as another song says, Lord, that when we can't see, we don't understand your hand, we can trust your heart. Lord, we pray you'd be our teacher now. Thank you for the challenging parts of God's word. May we humble ourselves before your word. May we quiet our hearts in the presence of your spirit. And Lord, may you change us and, and grow us and refine us even through our time in the scriptures today. We ask in Jesus' name. All right, we'll be dismissed to Children's Church. As they're making their way out, we'll, I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. Martin Seagal made this statement. We are all born legalists, but we are made into Pharisees. We are all born legalists, but we are made into Pharisees. Charles Spurgeon once preached, Beloved, the legalist in us is a great deal older than the Christian. 
If I were a legalist today, I should be some 15 or 16 years older than I am as a Christian, for we are all born legalists. You see, we're all born believing we can earn and deserve heaven. We are born resisting the idea of grace, mostly because of the awful things that grace says about us, like you're a sinner in need of a Savior. John Piper defines legalism as the conviction that law-keeping is the ground for our acceptance with God. It is a failure to be amazed at grace. Legalism is the religion of the self-righteous. It's the rule-making and then rule-imposing of the self-righteous to make themselves look good in comparison to others. Legalism, said another way, is a self-righteous heart just acting itself out. Legalism flowing from the heart of, a self, of the self-righteous, hear me today, is as dangerous a threat to the gospel as any that there is. I don't want you to miss what I just said. Legalism is as dangerous of a threat to the gospel as any that there is. And it wasn't just the Pharisees of Jesus' day that struggled with self-righteousness. Amen? All of us are born legalists. Because we're born with self-righteous hearts that insist we're better than others and therefore somehow deserving of God's acceptance. I want to talk to you this morning about the games that the self-righteous play. The games... The self-righteous play. Just so we're clear. I'm the main character in the message, and so are you. I'm not talking to somebody else. I'm talking to me, and the Lord is talking to you, not the person next to you, okay? So hang on, because this is one of those sermons. The games, the self-righteous play. Here's the take-home truth from Luke in, in essence, chapter 20. The self-righteous arrogantly refuse grace, hurt people, and attack Jesus and or the gospel. The self-righteous arrogantly refuse grace, hurt people, and attack Jesus and the gospel. You say, well, I'm not refusing grace. I don't, I don't, I don't I'm not sure I ever hurt anybody, and, and I've never attacked the gospel. Well, let's find out. I just want to encourage you as we, as we come to this text this morning, allow the Holy Spirit to examine your heart today because there are at least vestiges of self-righteousness in all of our hearts. We may even find that we've become modern-day Pharisees. Three games that the self-righteous play. Number one, the self-righteous seek to undermine the authority of of Jesus. The self-righteous seek to undermine the authority of Jesus. This takes us back a few weeks ago, last time we were in, in Luke's gospel together. 
And you'll remember what Luke 19, verses 40 and 47 and 48 tell us. There, Jesus, there, there Luke says of Jesus, and he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. And then the account rolls over into chapter 20, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priest and the scribes, that is, these that were wanting to destroy Jesus with the elders, came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things. Or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I'll also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, then Jesus is going to respond and say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, well, then all the people are going to stone us to death because they were convinced, they believed that John was a prophet from God. So they answered that they didn't know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Which was a veiled way of, for Jesus to simply say, You know I'm from God. Just like you know John was from God, you know I'm from God. They did not like the authority of Jesus. This group of religious leaders did not want Jesus telling them how to do church. You remember just before this in Luke 19, just before Luke 19, 47, uh, there's the account of Jesus cleansing the temple. You remember that Jesus, with undeniable authority from his Father, had walked right up into the middle of their religious enterprise, and that's exactly what it was and all it was, and called their supposed worship what it really was, and that is nothing but greed in the worship of of themselves. Luke 19, 45 and 46, it says, He, Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And they didn't like this authority that Jesus had done brought up in, from their perspective, their house. Do we chafe at Jesus' authority in our lives? Do we want only a ticket to heaven while not really being interested in practically following and obeying Jesus, that is, surrendering to His authority He who is Lord and Master of all? Well, what do you mean, Chad? I'm glad you asked. I knew you wanted me to make this practical and get down into everyday business with me and you. So here we go. Do we write off some of Jesus' teachings about sexual purity as being outdated? Sexual norms, what, what, what God has designed, what, what we see as, as in some discussions you hear it referred to this way, in natural law about sexual orientation and these types of things. What Scripture makes clear, what, what creation makes clear. Do we write off his teachings as being outdated? Or when Jesus says that the barometer of giving to his kingdom 
when Jesus says that giving to his kingdom is the barometer of our spiritual health, do we chafe at that? Do we say, you know, Jesus, I mean, come on. That's just, I mean, I mean I'm all about, listen, I, I don't want to go to hell. I really appreciate what you've done. I, I'm fine to come to church. But when you start messing with my money, I mean, come on, Jesus, that's just, that's like, that's got to be, you know, second, third. I mean, that's, that's way up here, some other tier that I'm not living on. Uh, that's extreme. I mean, it's really, it, it, Jesus, it, it really can't be necessary that you own my finances. I mean, all I'm interested, I just want you to take care of my soul. <laughs> or, when Jesus tells us we have, as those who enjoy his grace and his mercy, so freely given to us, accepted, given as a gift, accepted simply by faith, but purchased at a great, great price, even his own life. When Jesus tells us that it's our responsibility as his people to proclaim the gospel to the lost all around us and around the world, and we just kind of write that off, you know, that's, I know God calls some people to witness to the lost. I know God calls some people to be responsible to make sure the gospel gets to the nations. Is that... Is that how we deal with his authority? You see, the self-righteous seek to undermine the authority of Jesus. Let me just boil it down. The self-righteous are smarter than Jesus. And they figured out how to take this book and make it say what they want it to say. Uh, let, let, me, let me make it even more personal. When I'm being self-righteous, I can make the Bible say anything I want to make it say. I can baptize bad behavior, sin, and explain it away. And when I somehow figure out how to sanctify my sin, which is not a, that's an impossible statement, you understand that. But when somehow I try to figure out how to make it okay, every single time I do that, I'm saying, you know, Jesus, here's the deal. I know you're the boss and all, but I got a better way. I'm smarter than you. Do we know and understand? I mean, this is what I say every time I sin knowingly against God and against the commands of Jesus that are clear. The self-righteous seek to undermine the authority of Jesus. Number two, the second game that the self-righteous play, the self-righteous use deceit and distraction in attempting to destroy grace. That's long, we'll say it again. The self-righteous use deceit and distraction in attempting to destroy grace. Verse 20 of chapter 20. So they watched him, check this out, and sent spies who pretended... To be sincere, acted like they liked Jesus, act like they were going to follow Jesus, do what he said, so that they might catch him, Jesus, in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. You know what they wanted to do? They wanted to get him dead. They wanted to get him killed. And so they sent spies. They sent, they, they, they sent posers. They sent those that would go in and, and, and put on an act. And just wait till he slipped up so they could get him arrested and crucified. Well, he never slipped up. 
But finally, mob rule two days later won. He never slipped up. He never did anything worthy of death. So here they are. They're spying on him. They're trying to find him in some error so they can get him arrested. Verse 21, so they ask him, not sincerely at all, as verse 20 makes clear. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly. A little buttering up to start. And that you show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. They didn't more, no more believe that than the man in the moon. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Render to Caesar, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able to, in the presence of the people, to catch him in what he said, but marveling at him, at his answer, they became silent. The self-righteous used deceit and distraction in attempting to destroy grace. And so they bring up this issue of the tribute. Now this is not just normal taxes here. This is the, 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 the tribute to Rome. This was a, a, a special fee that they paid that all, um, all, in, in all places in the Roman Empire where Rome occupied another country. They had come in and, over, and taken over the nation and they occupied that nation. All those nations once a year had to pay the tribute which basically said, Rome, we, 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 listen, this is our acknowledgement, you're the boss. We've got to pay the you're the boss tax. And so they bring this up. They thought they created an impossible situation for Jesus. Because if Jesus says simply, yes, pay the, pay the tribute to, to Caesar then he would be perceived as being a traitor to his own nation and as somehow succumbing to the hated Roman Empire. At the same time, on the other hand, if he said, no, don't pay the tax, then they would have him right where they wanted him and he was dead for sure because then he would be defying Rome and his crucifixion would be swift. But Jesus said, bring me a, a coin. Bring me one of the coins you pay the tribute with. Whose picture's on it? Caesar. Then give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give him that coin. And give to God what, what's God's. You know what effectively he's saying? Look, see, yeah, bottom line. You, you, need, you need to pay Caesar the denarius, but here's what I'm telling you. You need to give all of the rest of you to God. And there's no conflict in that. In fact, Paul would teach us in Romans 13, God has even instituted human government. God had allowed the Roman Empire to be in power, and we have a responsibility to submit to our government in as far as they don't cause us, ask us to sin, or keep by some prohibition cause us to sin. We're to submit and give respect and honor to our government, whatever that government may be in the world, up to the point of, of disobeying God. 
But we are to be fully surrendered to God. We are to give our all to Him. And so all of a sudden, Jesus' answer shuts them down. But the self-righteous use deceit and distraction in attempting to destroy grace. Their whole, their whole, the, whole, the whole scenario was a lie. They just started lying when they started flattering. They didn't believe that about Jesus. And the whole deal was to get the focus of, of the spotlight of heaven off of them and try to trip up Jesus, somehow deceive and distract him from the main message of the kingdom that they were so trying to avoid. Namely, you're a sinner in need of a Savior. I'm him. Trust me. Do we try to hide? Do we try to hide from Jesus? Hang on. In our politics? In our diatribes against all that's wrong in our world so that we can keep living how we want and never give God all of his due? You see, God is due our all. If, in fact, Jesus lived, died, and rose again in our place, and, in fact, he did. Jesus is due all we are. The self-righteous not only, not only play the game of seeking to undermine the authority of Jesus, they play the game of using deceit and distraction and attempting to destroy grace. But the third and final game that we see from this text that the self-righteous play is this. The self-righteous love theological debate to try to discredit the gospel. They love theological debate try to discredit the gospel. Verse 27 of chapter 20. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, a man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. It's called leveret marriage in the Old Testament law. And the idea was that, that the brother of the man who died was to step in and provide a, a way for his brother's name and, 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 and lineage to continue on. And so they remind Jesus of this. And then in verse 29, they begin to paint this crazy picture. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. So, so all seven brothers were married to the same woman. And they all died. <laughs> I was reading one commentary, and, and, and it said, Number one, you call her a widow maker. <laughs> Whoever this gal was, she was something, because she outlived seven of them. Afterward... The woman also died, verse 32. In the resurrection, therefore, by the way, that they didn't believe in, you tracking? In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, complete category change, not really answering the question, but redefining it himself here. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, 
again, that they didn't believe in, and to the resurrection from the dead, again, that they didn't believe in, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. By the way, when he said that to, to Moses, those guys were dead. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the teachers answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. <laughs> they didn't want no more. They were done. Jesus deals with this crazy situation. And really a backhanded, underhanded way of, of asserting their denial of the resurrection. They, they were trying to show Jesus, that Jesus, this is crazy. Like, like if there's such thing as resurrection from the dead, I mean, this could, this could really happen. Seven brothers could be married to the same woman. Whose wife would she be? And, and he's just like, you guys not only don't believe in the resurrection, you're ignorant about the resurrection. The Sadducees did not, uh, tradition says, probably did not... Uh, think a whole lot of, of most of the Old Testament scriptures, but the law they were all, all about. Uh, the writings and the prophets, they didn't pay much attention to, but the law. And, and so Jesus goes back to the law and he said, here's the thing, Moses, in the law, in the part of the Bible you like, Moses called, God called, Moses called God the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, and the God of Isaac. But if there's no resurrection, I mean, those guys died. Well, how is he still the God of Abraham? It doesn't say he was the God of Abraham. It says he is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. How does that work? Well, they live forever. Boys, there is such thing as a resurrection. The dead are raised... And God's not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living for all live to him. Again, the self-righteous love theological debate to try to discredit the gospel, they were just trying to trip Jesus up, they were just trying to, to start a theological debate, Jesus just ended the thing before it began. Just so they could get him off track, just so they, again, get the spotlight off of them. The spotlight of the gospel that was saying to them, you're a sinner in need of a Savior. I am God's Messiah sent to save the world. Trust me. Follow me. Submit to me. So here's the question for us. Would I rather debate? Notice, even important theological questions. The resurrection is not an important, amen? The resurrection of the dead. That's a very important issue. 1 Corinthians 15 makes that clear. If the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised. And then we got real trouble, Amen? have nothing. This whole thing is a joke. And yet, would I rather debate even important theological questions than talk about what it means practically in my life that Jesus died for me and rose again and indwells me by His Spirit to rule and empower me in a life of obedience for His glory? You see, they didn't want Him messing with them and their lives. Let's distract him. Let's, let's talk about something else. Let's get the spotlight off of us. Do we feel more comfortable debating theological questions? And by the way, not everything is as simple and clear and 
and cut and dries the resurrection. You know, there's just people in the church that they love those things that there's no answer to ultimately, right? That you never do settle the debate. You just debate it forever. Do we like that more than we like talking about Here's what Jesus did, and here's what that means in my life. I mean, it means this right here on a Tuesday has to change. You see, even the self-righteous, even the Pharisees and the Sadducees could debate, could debate theology. They were glad to do that all day long. Just don't mess with my life. The self-righteous love theological debate to try to discredit the gospel. Main point of the text, again, the self-righteous arrogantly refuse grace, hurt people, and attack Jesus and the gospel. What I want you to see, fourthly and finally this morning, is this. Jesus and the gospel exposes the true motives of the self-righteous. Jesus and the gospel exposes the true motives of the self-righteous. We're fixing to read a bunch, so hang on. Some of it will be on the screen in front of you there. You can follow along in Luke 20, beginning in verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. We looked at this a few weeks ago. A man planted a parable, let it out to tenants, went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent out another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. Surely you're not saying of us that we're the tenants who've treated the prophets and now are treating supposedly the Messiah, you, Jesus, like this. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is, that, what then is it that is written... The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What does the prophecy mean, Jesus said, that talked about me, the cornerstone, and how the nation of Israel will reject me? And in the end, the nation of Israel will be crushed by this cornerstone called Jesus because they rejected him. The next verse gets to the very heart of where these folks were. The scribes and the chief priest sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived, they, were, they weren't real smart, but they were, they were sharp enough to catch this. They perceived that he had told this parable against them. Yep. Y'all are the tenants. You killed all the prophets that God would send. You, would, you, you, you ignored them. And you get them killed. And now here I am, the Son. God the Son, I'm here to save you. I'm here in grace and mercy. And yet two days later we know you're going to kill me. Man, they wanted to lay hands on him, but it says at the end of verse 19, but they feared the people. 
Do you see how Jesus in the gospel exposed the true motives of the self-righteous? Skipping down to the end of the chapter, verse 45, it says, In the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. At this point, Jesus is done talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes and the elders. He's done talking to them. From this point through his death, the only, the only thing he'll say to these people is what he has to say during the trials. He's done trying to reason with them or answer any of their questions. And he turns to the crowd and he said, let me tell you about these guys. And I believe they're still standing there. Here's the deal with them. Beware of them. They like to do all this religious show, but the reality is they devour widows' houses and only for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. That's stout. That's exposing, isn't it? Jesus basically said, all this show that you watch day in and day out around the temple, let me tell you, it's nothing but a show. The emperor has no clothes. Like, underneath all this, there's nothing but wickedness. Nothing but wickedness. Now, Luke and Mark, if you were to go back to Mark's account of this same thing, they give basically, almost word for word, this same brief version of Jesus' scathing condemnation of the self-righteous. Just a couple verses. Three right here, right? Pretty short and to the point. Not Matthew. Matthew records a much longer rebuke of the Pharisees and the scribes. In fact, 36 verses worth. Chad, you're not going to read all 36. No, most of them, but not all 36. So hang on. This is not on the screen. Just listen. Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12, and also 23 to 28. I'm not reading it all. There's 36 verses worth. Check it all out later. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you. That means whenever they would read the law of God, guess what? Then you ought to do what they read because it's God's law, right? So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. Do we know what to say, but not do what we say? Hello? Remember, this is about me and you. It's about me. It's about you. It's not about the guy next to you. They preach, but do not practice. Do we know what to say, but not do what we say? Verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. This was speaking of all their their oral traditions, all the, all the traditions and extra laws, man-made laws, they put up on top of God's law. Extra biblical, not God's law, not God's requirements, the traditions and rules of men. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Listen, 
they do all their deeds to be seen by others. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love, the, those are parts of their robe. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you're not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher. Who would that be, you reckon? Jesus. And you are all brothers and call no man father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven do we do what we do for jesus in actuality be to be seen by others do we do what we do for jesus to impress people and say here's the thing god knows my heart god sees your motives Verse 10, neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Someone has said that the test of our hearts in serving others is how we react when people treat us like servants. You want to know if you're a servant? How do you respond when somebody treats you like one? How do I respond when I'm treated like a servant by those whom I'm serving? You see, the answer to that question is, says a lot more about my heart than it does about the one who's treating me like a servant. Should we treat each other like servants? No. But the fact of the matter is, the fact that that bothers me when all I am before holy God and the Savior who died for me and rose again is a servant reveals a lot more about my heart than the person who's treating me like a servant. Verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, spices, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. The law said to tithe your spices. But what Jesus is here saying is this, and, and, and you scribes and Pharisees, man, you make sure everybody knows you tithe your deal. <laughs> you made your own a minor. You make sure everybody knows that you even tithe your cumin. And yet you neglect what has some weight to it. The real, more important parts of the law, that is justice and mercy and faithfulness. paints another word picture and he says you know you strain at a gnat but you swallow a camel you make you, you obsess over the tiniest of little things to make yourself look good but the stuff that really matters you just swallow it like it's not even important do we neglect do we neglect to care for those needier than we are all while majoring on the minors as an avoidance strategy? Are we too busy with the fine details of ministry to the point that we miss practical opportunities with real live people standing right in front of us to bring them justice and mercy and faithfulness to the heart of our Savior? Do we get call, all so caught up in all the details of, of certain church work that when we got a live person needing mercy, needing justice, needing us to show our faithfulness to Jesus and love them, 
that we just act like they're not there. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside, verse 25, of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You, you blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So also you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Some of the strongest words in all of Scripture spoken by Jesus to the self-righteous. Are we careful to keep up an outward appearance that looks beautiful, all the while having a heart full of malice toward others, impurity in our minds, sin in our lives, having greed that's controlling our finances and our time so that we can consume more on ourselves and not have to worry about anybody else. You see, Jesus in the gospel exposes the true motives of the self-righteous. These are the games the self-righteous play. These are the games I play when self-righteousness takes hold of my heart. These are the games you play when self-righteousness rises up in your heart. The self-righteous arrogantly refuse grace. They hurt people. And they attack Jesus and the gospel. You say, what about this hurting people thing? Well, do you remember what it said about widows? It says of the it said of the scribes and Pharisees that they devoured widows' houses. It's interesting as we roll over into chapter 21, and we're not going to go into any great de detail here, but as we roll over into chapter 21, the chapter ends, chapter 20 ends by saying that they devour widows' houses. Beware of these people. This is what they do. In chapter 21, verse 1, it says Jesus looks up and he sees a widow going to do her giving in the temple, and she puts in her two mites, and Jesus said that was all she had to live on. All these rich people giving out of their abundance, that's all she had to live on. There's got to be a connection. Is there a giving lesson in, in, in the widow and her two mites? Yes. But you know what I believe that the greater lesson here is? Here is a real-life example of the oppression of, of religious self-righteousness and legalism. This woman is giving all she has to live on because she's being mandated by man-made rules and traditions to give these temple taxes, to pay stuff that the law doesn't require of her, and she literally has nothing left to give now because of these scribes and Pharisees who devour widows' houses. People get hurt. So... Just ask yourself this question. As I ask myself this question, who do we live like Jesus is? I didn't ask you who you say you believe he is. Here's the question. Who do we live like Jesus is? Jesus, by the way, made it clear in our text, we already read it earlier, to all who he in fact is. There in verse 40, 41 of Luke 20, he said to them, How can they say to, that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? 
Hey, guys, I'm this guy that Psalm 110 talks about. I'm the one David called Lord. Yes, I'm, humanly speaking, I am a descendant of David, but I am the master of David. I'm the Lord of all. Who does it look like we believe Jesus is by the way we live? You see, Jesus is King David's Lord. For Jesus is God's Son and the Savior of the world. Jesus is Lord of all. Who do we live like Jesus is? Who do we say that Jesus is in raising our children and grandchildren? Who do we say that Jesus is in our business and in our work? Who do we say that Jesus is in our checkbooks? Who do we say that Jesus is in our entertainment, our recreation, and our leisure? With our words and our lives, who do we say Jesus is? On that single question hangs all of eternity. Pastor Brent Kerchival made this statement as we close. Jesus has an answer for whatever's holding us back. He is offering you life. We must give to God what is God's if we're to be counted worthy of the blood of Jesus to cover our sins. Give to God what is God's. What is God's? Everything. Everything belongs to Him. To be counted worthy of partaking in the age to come is to give Him everything. So the simple question as we close is this. Will you come to Him today? And receive life and then give all of your life to the only one worthy of it all, even Jesus himself. Will you? Church, the question for us is maybe will we come back to that simple place? Will we come back laying down our self-righteousness? As professing children of God, will we come back and say, Father, I'm, t I'm done being smarter than you. I'm done in my living denying your authority, saying you're outdated in the, in, in the requirements you have for me and the ways you say for me to live and behave and, and, and carry on my life in every aspect, from my finances to my sexuality. Will you do it? Will you come to him? Let's pray. Father, I pray. I pray for me. I pray that your spirit, when I play the games that the self-righteous play, when I am the self-righteous and play games with you, I pray that you would make it so clear to my heart. I pray you would deeply convict me by your spirit. I pray that your word would ring loud in my mind and that you would change me. That you would mercifully grant me repentance to turn back to you and surrender afresh to your will and your ways in practical obedience. Father, how I pray that for all of us as your church. And Lord, I pray today for that one who has never bowed the knee to Jesus because they've honestly in the arrogance of their heart thought they didn't need a savior I pray that today you have pulled that all away and they see it and I pray that today 
for the first time they would bow before their only hope, the only Savior, and the Lord of all, Jesus himself. That they would cling to him with everything they've got. Lord, you, you tell us if, if they'll do that, you will save them forever. And so I ask that you would work in our hearts, God. Lord, I thank you once again for hard passages. Jesus, thank you that you didn't beat around the bush. You didn't tickle ears. You told it like it was because our soul's eternity is at stake. And you loved us enough to shoot straight. You loved us enough to die on the cross. May we know that in all your strong words, there is still love and mercy and grace. And may we run to you afresh, for you're worthy. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and close our time in worship this morning. The Lord, however you need to today, this altar is open for you to come and pray. I'll be right here at the front. Maybe you need to meet Jesus today for the very first time. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when
amen and amen. You may be seated for just a moment. Uh, some quick announcements. First of all, immediately following this time, we're going to move right into a conference, and I mean pretty quick, like we need to do it about two minutes because we've got a busy afternoon. This afternoon from 2 to 5, there is a drop-by housewarming party for Trey and Juliana at their new home, which is at 345 345 Zion Hill Road. So there's the address. You can find it. Easy to get to. But let me encourage you to please carpool if possible. Parking is very limited. You cannot park on the street and walk to their house. You can, but you will be absolutely soaking wet by the time you climb the mountain to their house. And uh, if, you have, if you're not in good shape, you will also be near dead. So please carpool if possible uh, to see Trey and Juliana this afternoon. Also this afternoon at 4 o'clock, 2 to 5 housewarming, 4 o'clock Stackstones membership class session 1. Session 2 will be in two weeks on June the 5th from 4 to 6 p.m. Immediately following Stack Stone's uh, membership class tonight, Crowd to Jesus Prayer Service, 6 p.m. here as well. Next Sunday, we will celebrate communion together, so prayerfully prepare your hearts for that. Also, the International Learning Center, we're, we're looking to resume this ministry of teaching English to internationals in our community. Um, we want to resume that this fall, beginning in September. Uh, we've got couple people willing to help us teach. We do need about two more teachers, two of you that would be willing to teach English. And here's the thing, if you speak English, you can teach it. We've got a scripted curriculum. All, if you can read the curriculum out loud to the students, then God will use you to teach them English. It's almost magic. And so if you're willing to serve that way, come and, and help us out. Also, we need some young ladies to serve as child care workers. Uh, Kathy Hensley has been good enough to head that, um, that, the nursery effort of, of the ILC up. And uh, so we just need a couple uh, younger ladies to help serve there. So if you'd be interested, see me. Also, we're excited to announce today that we will be doing a one-day vacation Bible school on Saturday, June the 25th from 10 a.m. to 2.30 p.m., but we need some help. We need a game director. That's one of the key places that we still have outstanding is the game director. So if you'd be willing to serve as the game director, please see Julie Green to help with that. Also, we need general helpers. Again, a one-day Bible school, June the 25th, 10 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. Uh, you, you can be retirement age. There's something for you to do. We'll get you involved. Um, and, 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 and it'll be on a Saturday, so all the helper, helpers and hands that we can get, that would be awesome. See Julie Green to help. Just before we close in prayer, Roger is going to come. Roger Putnam's going to come and share an update from the missions committee, uh, and then we will close in prayer and move into our conference. this I'm pretty loud. <laughs> uh, good afternoon everybody. As Chad said, I'm Roger Putnam. If you don't know me, I, it's my extreme pleasure and privilege to serve on the missions committee in the last few years. I know we got a lot to do, so uh, I made some notes. I'll stick to them pretty tightly. Um, I just want to thank, praise the Lord first, and thank the body for the opportunity to serve on the missions committee. It's been a huge uh, blessing in my own life. It's it's awesome uh, to see the Lord work and 
thank the body for, for the giving and the participation over the last year and a half in particular. We, in the last year and a half, some of you may have heard in conference the last few times, but in the last year and a half, we have actually been able to increase our involvement in foreign missions nearly five-fold from what we were doing uh, just a short time ago, Amen. which is a huge, huge um, uh, move for us, and it's been a real blessing to be a part of that. And, and suddenly I have clarity of why Chad asked me to, to give the, uh, the update today. He'll do nearly anything to get me off the back row. <laughs> Even give me the mic. Bold gamble, brother, bold gamble. <laughs> Uh, just jokes. I love my brother. Um, really, we just wanted to, we met a week or so ago and um, went over what we usually go over, just the finances, uh, where money's going, how it's coming in. And uh, I really just wanted to, we agreed that it would be an appropriate time to update the church. Um, since everything's voted on by the congregation, we decide as a family what we're going to do across the world with uh, the blessings God's bestowed upon us. Um, so... Um, being said that, that we've had a real blessing to, to increase so much, it's been a real challenge, um, not only to decide where all the money goes, but to, do, to be good stewards of it in a fashion to where um, we don't get left hung out to dry, we don't overcommit. Um, so we've kept a little bit of reserve in our, our account, and we would love to, to spend that, um, but with such an expedient growth in our our giving, um, we felt it necessary to be good stewards to just hold that back because the financing that we send around the world, it affects people's lives. I mean, people are in third world countries and all sorts of crazy situations and they, they become dependent on that money uh, once it starts coming in to some degree. So um, we just wanted to, to go over that a little bit, just kind of let you know where we're at. Um, we have, still have a surplus balance, which is a good thing. But we just wanted to make you, the congregation, our family aware that we have uh, consecutive quarters now run a little bit short. We're running a little bit of an operational deficit on what we're bringing in versus what's going out every quarter. So we just wanted to make you aware of that. Um, it's not a significant deficit. We're hopeful that um, in quarters uh, forthgoing that, that that'll balance back out. We realize everything's an ebb and flow, life happens, this and that. We realize, especially in today's environment, inflation's uh, affecting everybody's budget. But um, we just wanted to, to make you aware of that. And um, beyond that, you know, we're hopeful and, and we have a real desire as a, as a committee and I believe as a church to, to not only balance what we're already doing, but to expand that further in the future. Um, a little bit off my remarks is this is what it's all about this book right here the one who authored it what it says in it and what it means for every individual breathing God's air on the face of the earth and that is um, it's an eternal difference it's a difference between life and death and um, it's such a blessing to be a part of a church that's a mission-minded church because the truth of the matter is is I've probably got 12 copies of God's Word in my house, but somebody around the world right now has never had the opportunity to hear it, and that has a devastating effect for their eternity. So I'm not going to sales pitch. I'm not here to shake the money tree, but 
I would just encourage us all as we get ready for our summer vacations, you know, if we're headed to the beach or to the lake, or we're just gonna kick it around LAJ, that we would just be, take a moment and be mindful of what really matters in life. And that, that is what's between the, the pages of this book, between in the beginning and all men, everything we need is there, everything every man, woman, and child across the globe needs is there. So I would just encourage you to think about that some um, as, as, as you go forth today and, and every day after that, for that matter. Um, we have, uh, although our desire and our hope is to expand in the future, the reality is, is that um, there is, if we're unable to, to meet our, our obligations that, that we've decided on as a family, there is some possibility of contraction on that. We will have to make, um, hopefully not, but there is some chance we would have to make hard decisions in the future. So. Uh, just kind of, kind of ponder on that a little bit. Seek God, God's will in your life as far as engaging foreign missions, and uh, and what that means for our body here at East LJ. But uh, we are hopeful that that um, that it is just a matter of ebb and flow as as things happen, and that we will uh, be able to m meet the things that we voted on as a church. And not only that, but um, just an encouragement that we will uh, hopefully be able to expand that because of uh, the importance and the nature of it. So, Amen. Amen. That's all I got. Did Thank I make you, Roger. You <laughs> no, you did good. Can you close us in prayer? I can. All right. Gracious and merciful uh, Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for this opportunity to come together and worship uh, freely, um, just to experience the power of your word and uh, sit under the truth, true preaching. And uh, Father, we do pray that you will just, by your spirit and the power of the truth of your word just draws each deeper uh, into fellowship with you deeper into the, the center of your purpose for our lives and just encourage us by your word to to do what you've commanded us to do to take take it to all the corners of the earth uh, that all may hear your glorious truth and experience the joy of your love father we pray that you would just bless bless us as a church and um, just be with us as we go out to live out your word and just to glorify your name in all things. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.